What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, Russian and Syrian airplanes are still using the same airfield we bombed on Friday. So, what was the point? Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say? On a Monday, April 10. How about it? Great to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us here. It is the Bill Press Show booming out to you live coast to coast from our studio right here on Capitol Hill in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., just down the street from the Capitol building, which is quiet today because, of course, uh, unlike you and me, the House and the Senate don't just maybe get a day off around Easter time. They get two weeks off and they are taking it uh, down the other end of uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, President Trump. Back in the White House. Man, I, just, I, I still a, cringe uh, every time you say. I know. Anybody says Trump. President Trump. Donald Trump. How's that? Is yeah. that better? Yeah. Donald work. Trump, the Trumpster, is back in the White House after spending the weekend down at Mar-a-Lago with the President of China getting a little golf in as well. Great to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us. We are, of course, coming to you on Free Speech TV and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show, all part of the Young Turks Network a lot going on, a lot to talk about today. Neil Gorsuch will be sworn in in the Rose Garden and Rose Garden ceremony at 11 a.m. I am boycotting that ceremony today. For I decided you. I want to yeah. be. I don't want to be there for that. Uh, I was there last week for uh, King Abdullah in the Rose Garden, and uh, but not for Neil Gorsuch. Uh, also, of course, a lot more questions around the bombing of Syria, and not only the question about why we didn't do a better job, maybe. The governor of Alabama facing impeachment and Donald Trump on track to actually outpace President Obama on the golf course. Believe it or not. All of that coming up. But first. This is the Full Court Press. Hello, friends. Just a couple of other stories making news. We will. I see what you did there. Yeah, you like that? Because we're going to start with the Masters, where we have a new Masters champion. He is... Sergio Garcia. He beat Justin Rose in a one-hole sudden-death playoff yesterday. The Masters always has a uh, a bit of a dramatic finish to it. You know, like, this is no, it it pretty does. incredible. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it took 74 starts for Sergio Garcia to finally win his first major victory. So congratulations to him. It's a tradition unlike any other, Bill, as okay. you know. 
Uh, and so he is going to. Uh, he wore the green jacket yesterday, and it is it no, is, but, it is. but it's it's an, it's an incredible story when you think about it. I mean, seventy four times he uh, he came close, but yeah, never won. And he finished in the top ten in the Masters three different times, <laughs> two, all the way back to two thousand two, two thousand four, two thousand thirteen. Uh, so uh-huh. he, his idol. Uh, was Seve Ballesteros, a fellow Spaniard, who won right, the Masters. Right, yeah. And so now he, he sort of gave him a shout-out after he won. I watched part of it, and it was great to see the, 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 that final round. Um, it was great to see the two of them are really good friends. Yeah. You know, there, was a, there was a really great moment uh, on that playoff hole where Sergio Garcia and Justin Rose were walking together. I saw, yeah. And I then Rose started, bump. Yeah, but then Rose oh. started to fade back. And tail off so that Sergio could walk to the green oh, yeah. and get the applause all to himself. It was a really cool moment. The yeah. crowd was very much behind Sergio. There. Very much behind In Sergio. Those final yeah. holes. Absolutely. No, he he had the crowd. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing though that that tournament we all dump on it and everything, but it it, it comes through every every year with. The, yeah. Yeah. I like the Masters. I do like the Masters. I know uh, you're a big fan of Peeps. Though. Yes. Uh, yes. Easter is coming up. I know. I don't know how much you like Peeps. Maybe as much as Matt Stoney. He set a world record yesterday. The World Peeps Eating Championship at National Harbor. He ate 255 peeps. There's a peeps store at National Harbor. Five minutes. Five minutes, 255 peeps. No. That's insane. That's nuts. Actually, I I mean, I like peeps. My sister, I have a sister and a brother who are brave. You're going to go to the peeps store. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I'm sorry they didn't compete. (laughs) On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. How about it? On a Monday, Monday, April 10. Hello, everybody. It is The Bill Press Show. We are live in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., on a beautiful spring morning here in Washington, heading up to some 80 degrees today, and it was uh, it was um, maybe mid-60s yesterday, so uh, spring is here. I think we finally put winter behind us. I uh, hope you have, too. Starting off a new week here, it is the first week of the uh, con- two-week congressional recess, uh, Easter Passover uh, recess. But the news continues on. Still a lot of questions about the Syria bombing, uh, which we talked a little bit about on Friday. It had just happened. Uh, Neil Gorsuch taking the oath of office today in the uh, Rose Garden, administered by Anthony Kennedy, for whom he clerked once at the Supreme Court. Down in Alabama, a little impeachment trial starting up for the governor of Alabama. And, yes, Donald Trump, uh, where has he been spending his time? We will tell you. Uh, so much, so much, so much to uh, talk about. Uh, and the Masters yesterday, of course, which Peter just brought us up to date That's on. That's right. Uh, which was uh, a great, great, great strong finish. Who was it that was supposed to – I mean, there were several people they thought might – by the way, Tiger wasn't even – didn't even compete, uh, well, right? I mean, yeah, Tiger's kind of off the He's, radar at this point. He really is. It's done, isn't it? Yeah, I hate, which I hate. Uh, I, I, there was like the number Jordan's, one – Jordan Spieth? Is no, it wasn't Jordan like Spieth. No, there was no. somebody that had to drop out. I uh, forgot who it yeah, was. Okay. I don't watch enough. God, what is his name? Dustin something? They all have the same name. Forget <laughs> it. <laughs> they kind of do, actually. Um, Dustin Johnson. That's who it was. Yeah. Dustin Johnson. 
but uh, it ended up there, and it was a great, a great, great finish for Sergio, uh, Sergio Garcia. Uh, and of course, the uh, you know we for us the the weekend is uh, Saturday Night Live. Alec Baldwin's back. He was back, double back, last night or Saturday night. Uh, not only playing Donald Trump, but playing Bill O'Reilly as well. Of course, the two are at these, the same time. They are both the same person. You know, that's not like it, it took me seeing that to go. Oh my God, they really like if you can get Trump, you could get O'Reilly. Yeah, as an impression. Yeah, yeah they right. very are similar. Uh, and they both have the same hobbies. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Predilections. Sure. Or pastimes. Yeah, harassing women. Is, or yeah. crimes. Sure, yeah. Whatever you want to call them. Uh, yeah. So um, uh, Bill O'Reilly there when uh, Donald Trump shows up, both played by Alec Baldwin. Good evening, Bill. It's so wonderful to be here on The Factor. I'm a big fan. <laughs> I'm a big fan as well, and it's an honor to have you here. And can I just say, Mr. President, you look even better on TV. <laughs> I know, I do. I look fantastic. And can I tell you something? I actually see a lot of myself in you, Bill. Oh, His O'Reilly's boy. very good. His O'Reilly is very He's good. got the smirk down, I think, is yeah. the, the most important part there. Yeah. Uh, I'm so sorry that uh, we didn't get him for the White House Correspondents' Dinner. That would have been the... Uh, uh, that would have been the <laughs> highlight of all the White House Correspondents' Dinners that, that I have uh, been to, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, into the more serious news. Yes, indeed. Uh, let's start with the ceremony in the White House today. It uh, became official on Friday morning uh, in the Senate after getting rid of the uh, filibuster, of course, after t- using the nuclear option. We knew how it was going to go, and Democrats knew that Republicans were going to use a nuclear option when they um, stood hung. Hmm. When they hang together, hung together, hung together, yeah, hung together, hung together, hung together. Uh, all except three or four of them. Um, but the Democrats did the right thing anyhow because Gorsuch uh, would be a disaster on the Supreme Court for many issues that we care about. Uh, and of course, Mitch McConnell, as threatened, did use the uh, nuclear option. And then the vote, uh, the vote was a matter of fact. Mike Pence making a big deal, however, when he presiding over the Senate announced it. The ayes are 54, the nays are 45. The nomination of Neil M. Gorsuch of Colorado to be an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States is confirmed. A little more ceremony than you usually have when you announce a vote on the floor of the uh, Senate. But let's just remember, it is and will always be a stolen Supreme Court seat. Uh, a seat stolen from Merrick Garland, a seat stolen from President Obama, a seat stolen from the Constitution, a seat stolen from the American people. Uh, it should have gone to Merrick Garland. Uh, Republicans refused to give him even a hearing, uh, of, of, uh, a meeting, or a hearing, let alone uh, a vote. And um, Merrick Garland, who will be sworn in today at 11 a.m. in the Rose Garden by Justice Anthony Kennedy, for whom he once clerked on the Supreme Court. And that is the first time in history, by the way, uh, that a clerk will serve on the Supreme Court alongside of a justice he once clerked for. That's interesting. Uh, But still, Merrick Garland will be there in time uh, to have an impact. Excuse me. Sorry. Mer- uh, Merrick Garland. Garland. Oh, my God. What did I say? No, he won't be, sadly. Right. Neil Gorsuch will. He'll be there maybe for, you know, 30 years, 
uh, and but an immediate impact on uh, a couple of important issues that are going to come before the court. The Muslim ban, for sure, uh, the first test probably of whether Gorsuch has any independence from Donald Trump. Um, the Muslim ban, and also all the conflicts of interest surrounding uh, Donald Trump. The emoluments clause, you know, is going to come before the Supreme Court. Maybe the lease on his hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, all of those issues of, of early tests, again, for the judicial independence of uh, Neil Gorsuch. And I thought that's all Republicans always wanted in a judge, right? They wanted judicial independence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They didn't want any uh, automatic yes votes. All I can say is uh, I, I, I promise you this from now until uh, for the next four years, every night I'm going to get down on my knees and pray <laughs> for a long life for Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer. Yeah. You know, I, I'll say this. I think that most of the Go public. Ruth. She's yeah, right. tough to a She's tougher than all. Yeah. But, you know, to me, whether or not the American people and the public cares about Mitch McConnell's sort of grandstanding over Merrick Garland and shutting it down, I'm not so sure that it, it has like a giant reach, right? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but I'm not so sure of that. We'll talk about that a little bit later, by the way, with Paul Singer from yeah, the yeah, yeah. Today. Yes. He's written about it. But. Yeah, but, but the one thing that I do think that will play is the hypocrisy here of the Republicans because, like, you're right. This is an I mean he is an activist judge. This like Democrats weren't just blocking him because they're trying to get an eye for an eye here. You no. know, like there right. was a good reason to block Neil or to try and block Neil Gorsuch. So anytime that you hear a Republican talk about activist judges and, you know, lefty judges and things like that, it's well, BS. It's yeah. total BS. Look, do you know what what finally resolved that argument once and for all? Bush v. Gore. Yeah, right. Yeah. The most activist decision made by any court in the history of humankind. Without a doubt. Uh, and, of course, Republicans think that that was okay. It's okay to take over a presidential election and anoint the next president of the United States as long as they anoint, they're anointing the right, uh, yeah, the right their the person. Pick. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the person that, that you want. Uh, all of that again at Supreme uh, Supreme Court uh, swearing in ceremony in eleven o'clock in the Rose Garden this morning. Meanwhile, yes, indeed, uh, more talk, a lot of talk, and that's what most of the Sunday shows were devoted to. Talk about um, the U.S. bombing fifty-nine cruise missiles raining in on that uh, airfield in Syria uh, late Thursday night in response to Bashar al-Assad's use of chemical weapons against his own people uh, a couple of days before. Uh, as we said on Friday, uh, and most comments by most members of Congress, even, even Democrats, uh, uh, noted that this was a what we used to call a surgical strike. It was proportional. Uh, it was limited. Uh, it was targeted. Uh, it was in response to a horrific act uh, that everybody condemned. Uh, and so even most Democrats supported that as a one-only, one-time, quick response. However, uh, it does raise more questions than it answers. Uh, for one thing, there's a, there is concern that the big question is, was this, as limited as it was, a legal action? I think the answer to that is clearly no. There is, there was no 
act of Congress, no, uh, not even a request on the part of the president for approval by Congress. Uh, and without that, there's no authority for the president to order a military strike or to send us into war, even uh, one little act, act of war uh, and the launching of 59 cruise missiles. That much is clear. Uh, and that point was raised yesterday uh, by uh, Senator Tim Kaine from Virginia. Doing this without consulting Congress, without a vote, I think is a clear violation of law. And uh, by a ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, uh, Adam Schiff as well, who said, uh, I, and I made this point, by the way, on CNN or MSNBC the other day as well, uh, we said this about President Obama, we'll say it also about President Trump, they've got to come to Congress. I don't think, frankly, Obama should have put troops back in Iraq or in Syria without congressional approval. I don't think this president should have taken that strike without congressional approval. And what uh, the White House is asserting uh, is the same thing that President Obama asserted at the time when he bombed Libya, is that uh, there is the continuing authorization for the use of military force adopted in the wake of September 11, back in 2001. Uh, that is what George Bush used for authorization for the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. President Obama used it uh, for bombing Libya and I, I forget some other uh, military action. It is long, long expired. We either need a new authorization for the use of military force or maybe, maybe, just maybe, uh, the President of the United States should follow the Constitution uh, and if he or she deems that a certain action merits a military response. You do what the Constitution says. You come to Congress and ask them to approve it and declare war. So that whole question of cloud of legality is one that hangs over this Syria, uh, the Syria move. And, and by the way, there are a lot of people who were okay with some of the action that Barack Obama took without getting that authorization for war. Right? He came around and tried to get it. For, ironically enough, for Syria, uh, uh, yeah, but like he did a couple things that he Down should he should have yeah. gotten, and and Democrats were By fine the way, so with did Bill, that. So did Bill Clinton, yeah. And so like here we are, we have a guy in the White House who is not a Barack Obama, not a Bill Clinton, not even a George H. W. Bush, right? Who is a level-headed politician who might not just you know willy-nilly start wars. Donald Trump could very well be that guy, so we should be concerned and should make Congress, you know, make a decision here. Congress really should assert itself. And it does seem to me, again, this should not be, this should not be a partisan issue. This should be Republicans and Democrats ought to agree, uh, members of Congress, that they, under the Constitution, have a legal constitutional responsibility which they should demand to exercise and not just look the other way no matter who the president is uh, in the White House. So that's one, one issue. The other, the other issue is, I, I mentioned this earlier, but is um, how effective was it? I mean, the, I, we were told that, that what we were going to do was take out that one airfield. Uh, first of all, there was talk about downing, remember, uh, last Thursday during the day, that the objective was to ground, this is what John McCain and Lindsey Graham were asking for, to ground the Syrian Air Force, period. All radar installations, all planes, all air bases, boom, which would have been a massive operation. Uh, I would say, fortunately, uh, the, Donald Trump didn't choose that option. But even with this one limited airfield, 
by the end of the day, Russian planes and Syrian planes, bombers, were taking off from that same airfield. And by the way, <coughs> dropped bombs, not chemical bombs, but dropped bombs on the same city where they had dropped uh, chemical weapons uh, a couple of days before. So you have to ask another question is, what was the impact? What was the point uh, of this mission other than sending a message? Uh, obviously, the damage was not that great. Um, but maybe the more important point is, and John McCain made this uh, yesterday, okay, we did one strike against Syria. Uh, now what? Yeah. Taking this action, I support and was important. Uh, but we've got to have a strategy and a plan to follow through. Just a one-time deal is not is not going to be productive. And saying we are only going after chemical weapons areas ignores the enormity of the problem. Yeah, and I think John McCain has a point. I mean, if you ask um, anybody around the uh, Trump administration today, okay, we see this. Now, what is our overall strategy on Syria? They can't answer that question. And we've said this, we've talked about it, <laughs> neither could Barack Obama at the time. I mean, Syria was the one big mess of his administration, from a foreign policy point of view, of his administration. But the Trump administration clearly has even less of a strategy towards Syria. For one thing, uh, their top spokespeople are going in two different directions on the key issue about what is our goal in Syria? Is it to get rid of Bashar al-Assad? Or is it to defeat ISIS? Or is it both? And does one happen have to happen before the other? Even Donald Trump himself, two days before this chemical weapons attack, he and his press secretary, Sean Spicer, said that this administration, unlike the Obama administration, had um, walked away from the goal of removing Bashar al-Assad from power. Uh, Trump himself said that uh, the better alternative was to leave him there. Uh, and then two days later, after the chemical weapons attack, Donald Trump said he had changed his mind. He had gone in a different direction. Now they wanted to remove Bashar al-Assad from power. But again, do you do that at the same time that you're defeating ISIS? Uh, it is very, very, very confusing. And we heard that yesterday from um, uh, H.M. McMaster's, the um, national security advisor. In fact, Rex, first of all, Rex Tillerson and Nikki Haley, Secretary of State and the ambassador to the UN, UN both said opposite things. Nikki Haley said Bashar al-Assad had to go. We've got to go and make sure that we actually see a, a leader that will protect his people. And clearly, Assad is not that person. Rex Tillerson said just the opposite. That, this, yeah, this strike was related solely to the most recent horrific use of chemical weapons against m women, children, and as the president said, even small babies. And we're asking and calling on Bashar al-Assad to cease the use of these weapons. Other than that, there is no change to our military posture. So, no change, no change. This is just one little thing. Uh, I mentioned a National Security Advisor McMaster's who says, well, our goal is to do both, but one first, or I'm not sure exactly what he's saying here. 
Well, I think as you saw with the strike, that, that, there, that there has to be a degree of, uh, of simultaneous activity as well as a sequencing of the defeat of ISIS first. What you have in Syria is a very destructive cycle of violence, uh, perpetuated uh, by, by ISIS, obviously, uh, but also by this regime and their Iranian and Russian sponsors. And Secretary, I mean, uh, Senator Marco Rubio says this doesn't, this doesn't work. This doesn't work, guys. You've got you to make a choice here. There is no such thing as Assad, yes, but ISIS, no. This focus that you can defeat ISIS as long as Assad is there is not true. They are two sides of the same coin. So the questions and uh, this big question, I mean, who speaks for the administration? The administration, do they have a plan? Um, do they have a strategy? I think the clear answer to that is no. No, of course they don't. No. I want to know what happens next. I just, I like... You know, bombing uh, an airfield that not even effectively, I don't think is a very <clears throat> strong message to send to Syria. Right. Uh, and then the final piece of the Syria puzzle, of course, is Russia, which is going to come into play this week in a big way when Secretary of State Rex Tillerson goes to Moscow. And he has said uh, ahead of going uh, that Russia must disassociate itself from Bashar al-Assad. They've got to stop supporting him. That, in fact, their support of Bashar al-Assad make, makes them partly responsible for the use of chemical weapons uh, last week. Uh, and so that should be some um, make for some interesting meetings uh, yeah. coming up in Moscow. Uh, not to mention uh, Russia's continued presence in eastern Ukraine, uh, nor Russia's... Um, holding of Crimea, seizing of Crimea, and continue to hold Crimea. So a lot on Tillerson's plate. Uh, and the man that we know once received the big medal of friendship from Vladimir Putin, <laughs> he, may have the, he may have the medal of friendship taken away from him when he gets to Moscow uh, this week because it looks like there's going to be some uh, uh, rocky, times, uh, rocky times ahead. But it is true. I mean, between Iran, Iran and Russia are the two big supporters uh, of, of Bashar al-Assad. Otherwise, uh, everybody else in the world, I think, would unite uh, behind getting him out of power. He's there largely because of the support of Russia uh, and Iran. So Russia can't wash its hands of the whole mess in Syria, not at all. Meanwhile, um, where was Donald Trump this weekend? Um... Let's see. I I think he might have been someplace in Florida. Yeah. What is that place called? Yeah. Mm. Mm. And, yeah. And who owns that resort? It rhymes with Laura Mago. Yeah. Who owns that resort? It's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. It's unbelievable. So uh, it was reported this weekend that out of uh, all the seventy-five or seventy-seven, whatever it is, days of his presidency so far, uh, Donald Trump has spent every two point eight days. So one day out of three, he has spent at one of his properties. What? It, uh, now, let's, let's be clear. The White House is not one of his properties. He doesn't <laughs> own it yet. Yet. Right. It doesn't have the big T on top of it yet, right? Or the big word, Trump. But either Mar-a-Lago or one of his golf courses down there or the golf course here in Virginia, Right. By the way, this doesn't even count Trump Tower. He hasn't been back to Trump Tower in New York yet, which surprises me. 
Oh, I, thought, right. I guess not. I thought he'd be up there every weekend. Well, his wife is up well, there. Well, his wife is up there, but this is But, Don. like, well, that would be a good reason to go visit, maybe. Uh, maybe. Or his son. Yeah. Maybe he'd like to see them. Mm-mm. No. No. Uh, I'm not saying that he's not a loving father and husband, but, like, if your family lives in New York and you live in Washington, D.C., and you've made zero trips to go see them. Uh, let me you ask you this that. question. Outside of the inauguration, have you ever seen a picture of him with Barron? No. I haven't. No. No. Uh, do you think he knows that he has? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but anyhow, the point was that he, every, one out of three days has been spent at a Trump property, other than the White House. Nowhere else. He hasn't gone anywhere else. hasn't gone to Camp David, right, anywhere else. And not only that, uh, a lot of that time has been spent on the golf course. Now, I want to say right up front, I don't give a damn how much golf he plays. No, that's not the point. Seriously. I I mean, you know, I used to be a golfer. Maybe I'll get back into it someday. I'm not criticizing the fact that he plays golf. I just want to point out that this is a guy who slammed Barack Obama all the time for how much golf he played. He once said, how, how, how could Barack Obama be out on the golf course when there's such a mess in Syria? And he was on the golf course Saturday and Sunday this weekend <clears throat> when there's such a mess in Syria, might we add. So um, our good friend Mark Nolder from CBS Radio, uh, he did a little count. Uh, so President Obama... It was not until the 26th of April that he played golf as president. He waited until the 26th of April. <laughs> now, after that, he got a lot of golf in. He sure got did. a total in eight years of 333 rounds of golf. Okay. So far, and this is the 10th of April. Donald Trump has played 16 rounds of golf. So the man who criticized Barack Obama for being too much time on the golf course is out there a lot earlier than Barack Obama. What so far, only it? only April 10, he's already had 16 rounds of golf so far, two rounds this weekend, and as Mark Nolder points out, he is on track to surpass Barack Obama. If he keeps at this pace, right, he will far surpass Barack Obama in how much time he's spent on the golf course. Which, again, golf, that's fine. Eisenhower did it. George W. Bush did it. Barack Obama did it. Bill but Clinton did it. I don't care. You've, but you can't you can't attack somebody else for doing it and then do the same thing yourself or do even more of it yourself. Right. And also, like, you're right. I mean, if you're – you have one of the most stressful jobs in the world if you're president of the United yeah. States, right? You want to blow off some steam and play golf on the weekends. That's cool. I don't care. But you're right. Number one, criticizing him – after the way that he uh, – or criticizing yeah. Obama and then doing the same yeah. thing is a really, really bad look. But also, he's not going there necessarily to just blow off steam. He's only going to Trump courses, as you mentioned. <laughs> he's using the presidency to give free commercials to his property. Of course. It was, what, what was it? It was $100,000 $100, to join Mar-a-Lago now before he was 200. elected pre- president. Now it's $200,000. Ka-ching. Yeah. Ka-ching. It's yes, all about indeed. the grift. Now, remember, we had two big goals on this show a year or so, a couple of years ago. One of them was to see every state uh, that same-sex marriage would be legal in every one of the 50 states of this country. We've achieved that goal. We had a second goal, which which is to see recreational marijuana legal in every one of the 50 states of the union. 
We're not quite there yet on that one. But in pursuit of that goal, we're going to turn to uh, the issue of uh, legalization of medical marijuana and recreational marijuana with our next guest here on the Bill Press Show. All you potheads, stay tuned. Let's do it. And can I tell you something? I actually see a lot of myself in you, Bill. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. On a Monday, April 10, uh, welcome back, everybody. It is the Bill Press Show. We're coming to you live coast to coast, all part of the Young Turks Network. Looking at you on uh, YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Also looking at you on Free Speech TV. And uh, fun to join you out in Chicago on WCPT in the great city of Chicago and all the uh, surrounding suburbs. We're coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, brought to you today by the International Association of Firefighters. Yep, we all depend on them, and they never let us down, the men and women of our firefighting departments across the country. On the front lines every day, protecting American families under the leadership of President Harold Schaitberger. We salute them for the good work, thank them for their support of the program, and encourage you to check out their website at iaff.org. Yes, indeed, um, the question of legalization of medical marijuana continues uh, and branching off now in several states in the legalization and the District of Columbia with the legalization of recreational marijuana as well. Joining us in studio from Medical Marijuana, Inc., CEO Stuart Titus. Hello, Stuart. Nice to see you. Nice to see you this morning. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for coming in uh, and working with Stuart on many of these issues. Andrew Hard is the CEO of CMW Media, also in studio with us. Andrew, good to see you, too. Yeah, thank you so much for having us, my friend. So, Stuart, how many states now do uh, accept or have medical marijuana is legal in how many states? Well, currently it's uh, 28 states, though this week uh, West Virginia is coming on board to make the 29th state to be legal for medical use in the United States. Only 29? Only 29 why is so it far. Taken, I mean, seriously, why is it taken so long? <laughs> well, it's uh, certainly been something that's been developing since 1996 when California uh, went uh, legal for medical use. Thank you. We, we see Except tremendous... that we're pioneers, we Californians. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. We are. But certainly uh, moving up, up forward, we see a tremendous uh, use in uh, the uh, medicinal aspects of the plant. Uh, we believe the last uh, two states who've legalized, Pennsylvania has 18 medical uses, Ohio 21 different indications for medical use. So I think that speaks volumes to the future for the research and uh, certainly the medicinal use of the cannabis plant. What is the argument against it? Uh, I mean, there's so many stories of people who have been substantially helped in in a time of serious illness by by 
medical marijuana. Or well, marijuana. It's so. been uh, fantastic. Of course, we've had our uh, stories as well, and we're yeah. collecting our anecdotal evidence. Okay. Uh, we're just starting some of our clinical research. But truly, if you look at the science behind us and the tremendous um, amount of receptor sites that are expressed all throughout the body that make up this what's called the endogenous cannabinoid system, and receptor sites uh, well expressed in the brain, the spinal column, and our abdominal internal organs, uh, which uh, regulate immune function. Uh, certainly, uh, there's some uh, tremendous uh, potential not only for uh, the pharmaceutical versions, but also for nutraceutical botanical products that many patients are now switching over to from prescription medications. What is that phrase you use, anaboid? What is it? It's called the endogenous cannabinoid system. Uh, sometimes called the endocannabinoid system. Uh, this is a new system within the human body that was just discovered in the mid-1980s, uh, yet uh, it really seems to be the most profound discovery possibly in the history of medicine. I want to just remember that, the cannabinoid system, Peter. Yeah. That's, or uh, or the... endocannabinoid system. It's your body's natural system of cannabinoid receptors throughout the human body. And uh, the real truth is the existence of that system in the human body really indicates humankind has used cannabis as a medicine for, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of years for and it to exist like that. And needs it. Yes, yes. The last time, if you're not a cannabis user, the last time you receive cannabinoids is literally from your own mother's breast milk is the last time you receive cannabinoids. If you don't, you know, take them in in some form, at least CBD from hemp or something like that. It really, really goes That's to show wild. That, uh, yes. Yeah. Like, I'm blown away by that. <laughs> Your mother gave you cannabinoids as she was nursing you, uh, literally, literally. And, God and, and, bless her. <laughs> <laughs> My first high. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they're a good thing. And, 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 and just so you know, I mean, the, the way things have evolved is uh, hemp was in our diet because our livestock was consuming it. And so at least what you were eating had cannabinoids in it. And now that's been totally worked out because of the prohibition. Growing hemp is illegal, which is obviously insane. Uh, but it is. That's starting to come back in Colorado and Kentucky, obviously. But we've eliminated hemp and cannabinoids completely from our food supply. And actually, Stu can even tell you, I mean, there's even writers speculating about a, a cannabinoid deficiency syndrome of is this actually part of what's led to the spikes in uh, several neurological disorders, you know, horrible spikes and things like autism and really severe forms of epilepsy. And, uh, you know, th th these are the disorders well, that these cannabinoids are starting to be researched for. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I, my mind is just completely going nuts here. There's so much, so much to, to talk about here. Uh, <laughs> you're, no, but like, uh, you're blowing my mind. But for, <laughs> so what you're saying almost is that um, cannabinoids or pot, or hemp, right, should be part of our Every diet. balanced diet. Yes, Every diet. Yes. Our, really, our theory, Stu can tell you, is that it consumed like vitamin C, like what vitamin C has, has become as, as part of everyday nutrition. Really, Starting with children. Starting with many children who are using our product uh, quite successfully. Uh, many countries around the world actually accept it uh, for the treatment of what's called refractory epilepsy. Uh, it seems that our product has been able to control seizure disorders in many children when traditional pharmaceutical medications have failed. Uh, but it's hemp or marijuana, either either one or both uh, or what? Well, uh, both plants contain cannabinoids. Uh, the marijuana plant contains the high concentration of THC, your yeah. psychoactive or intoxicating cannabinoid, if you will. And hemp can contain a high concentration of the non-psychoactive cannabinoid called cannabidiol or CBD. And both have medicinal um, 
Both have uh, research, medicinal applications, absolutely. There's, in fact, the U.S. government patent on the therapeutic use of these cannabinoids that dates back to the year 2003. What, so these products that you have, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, so this is our flagship product that you're holding right now called Real Scientific Hemp Oil. And this is a uh, hemp-based CBD product, a high concentration in uh, CBD. And uh, we have this available in the U.S. Uh, in uh, our nutraceutical uh, sales is it operations. by prescription only? Uh, in certain countries, but not here in the U.S. Oh, okay. It's available uh, over the counter. It's just a nutraceutical or food-based product. But you'd have to... Um, it would have to be in one of the 29 states where you could uh, buy no, this? No, you can purchase this in any of the 50 states, uh, just like you can go to a health food store yeah. around the country, oh. buy hemp seed, hemp seed oil, hemp protein powder. Those are all fully legal by federal uh, court regulation going back to 2004. But you can't grow hemp in oh. this country, can you? Unless it's supervised by a university research study. Uh, you can't yet. Uh, in Colorado and Kentucky, you can. You know, Kentucky... Uh, with Mitch McConnell actually very famously sued the federal government to get hemp seeds to start to grow. Okay. A major initiative. Yeah, yeah. Really, the resurgence of hemp and hemp farming, uh, without a doubt, is is number one, the, the number one way that actually the U.S. could really depart from its, like, petroleum-based economy and all the problems that we have now. It also would be the biggest return of the American farmer. I mean, we're talking... This country was actually founded by hemp farmers, and you could pay your taxes in hemp. It's a, it's a fact of American history. And in the 1930s, we just completely wiped this out of our culture altogether, and it, it, it really has you – know, that prohibition has nothing to do with what this country was actually but founded why? on. Why? Well, uh, industrial reasons. So that was the first case. I'm a former journalist myself. That was actually the first case of yellow journalism, which was – William Randolph Hearst owned both sides of the newspaper industry. He owned all the newspapers, and he owned all the printing presses they were printed on. And hemp paper was a threat to his paper mill empire. So he took hemp and marijuana. He conflated them both, made everybody think that they were the same thing. Uh, hemp is an, is an amazing plant. I mean, it's like a superfood, and uh, it also detoxifies. I mean, in, in Chernobyl, they planted hemp to suck the bad radiation out of the soil is what a, you know, a detoxifier hemp is. Not to mention you can make over 20,000 different products with it. You can make you know, a house, shirts, clothing, rope, the rigging of ships. Uh, during World War II, there was a massive hemp for victory tour that you can find on YouTube of the government's propaganda about, wait, hemp is great now. Um, so when it was badly needed, uh, you know, the government went back to it. And really, people really need to realize just really, really how wrong it is to have a, a leader like Jeff Sessions out there making really ridiculous, antiquated comments about cannabis and marijuana and really how positive this all is and how much a part of a, our history it is. Yeah, I saw a story of the weekend. He wants to uh, bring back the war on drugs in full force, right? Because it was so successful. It was before. so successful, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's it's never going to work. I, I mean, Stu, Stu can tell you literally Medical Marijuana Inc., Stu's company, received approval from Cofe Pris, which is Mexico's FDA, to export real scientific hemp oil as a recognized medication to Mexico. So literally you have sitting in front of you right here the, the story of like the Berlin Wall coming down of, you know, we spent an, fought an 80-year border war to keep marijuana out from Mexico. And now the United States is exporting yeah. it as a medicine to Mexico. 
Certainly, we're excited about the you know, fact that this is a cannabis-based product, uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, CBD, of course, being non-psychoactive, um, you know, it's a much easier sell, if you will. The countries like Mexico have had terrible uh, drug wars, cartel violence, et cetera. And uh, basically, the regulatory authorities there challenged us to develop a fully THC-free product because they saw the benefit of CBD, that it was non-psychoactive, et cetera. Uh, we went back to our laboratory facilities that developed this, and our product was accepted as of February 1, 2016. So you are exporting uh, this hemp oil to Mexico? Uh, Brazil, Mexico, and uh, about 44 other countries around the globe. And and where does that, and where does it come So our hemp that we grow is actually uh, grown by a consortium of farmers over in Europe, uh, where it's, of course, <laughs> because illegal we to can't, grow. Because you can't grow can't it grow here. in our own yeah. country. Jesus. Man. Insane. So, so in Europe, then? Uh, so we start yeah. uh, our operations in Europe, and then, of course, we uh, process uh, uh, the raw oil, which then is allowed to be exported from Europe into the U.S. We had to develop this all going back to the year 2011-2012, but uh, over time we've developed this uh, wonderful uh, pipeline from Europe, and uh, certainly it's been uh, quite exciting. We were the first, uh, say, publicly traded company in this uh, space, industrial hemp, medical cannabis. Now we have 230 other followers uh, since then, and it's been uh, great since uh, back in March of 2009 when the company was founded to really see the growth. Can, so, I, can, yeah. I, can I ask kind of an indelicate question? Because I, I, I think this is awesome, <laughs> but I also love to get high. So, like, will these things get you high? So uh, CBD is uh, truly considered a non-psychoactive cannabinoid. It uh, doesn't really have the intoxicating effect, if you will, that sure. THC does. Uh, but nonetheless, it uh, does have some uh, tremendous uh, neuroprotective uh, type of benefits that even the U.S. government has researched. So uh, with that, it kind of gives you a relaxed focus to your mind. Okay. All right. I need, a, I need more here. relaxed focus. I'm that. here for it. <laughs> so, I mean, the, honest, the, the answer is most likely not. However... Um, I guess, uh, you know, CBD has some of the, like, you know, relaxing qualities. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, is what it would be. But it is considered a non-psychoactive cannabinoid. We have heard reports back that somebody taking it maybe the very, very first time or second time. Uh, actually, the human body wants cannabinoids so, so badly uh, that we've heard reports back of uh, not feeling, like, high, like literally having smoked marijuana, but, like, a euphoria that was that was literally actually the user's body like rewarding them of That's like so thank awesome. you for giving me cannabinoids. Isn't that crazy? I, I just I'm fascinated by that. <laughs> so I'm why endlessly you, fascinated by yeah, that. Yeah, your why body wants you, cannabinoids. Why don't Very you important. have them uh, like like vitamins, like pills that people could just pop a cannabinoid? Well, we are yeah. actually working towards <laughs> <laughs> asked and answered, Bill. <laughs> yeah, we're working, on we're it. working towards a actual uh, recommended daily uh, serving size. Uh, yeah. Let's say uh, we do right. really right. feel these are truly vital, necessary nutrients for the optimal functioning and performance of the All human right. body. All right, I want to come back to my question before we move on to uh, recreational, which I'd like to talk a little bit about. Was I don't understand the argument against medical marijuana in these 30 states that are 20 states that don't yet haven't 21 states that haven't approved it. Are they saying that they they just because they fear it will lead to medical to recreational marijuana or they fear it's a gateway drug that whole argument or I mean it, it there's really, so many it really, people it really is the classic that, stuff yeah I mean it, it really is it's a gateway drug. All that stuff, right? Uh, yeah, it's just classic reefer madness. Just what about nonsense. the AMA? Uh, the the doctors. Uh, does the AMA have a position on medical marijuana? Have they? 
Or do they still oppose it? Or well, I, I think they're uh, starting to change the way they think. And certainly, I mean, uh, we see the NIDA have. director, uh, National Institute on Drug Abuse uh, director, stating that uh, CBD uh, should be back in the American pharmacopoeia because it truly has some medicinal value. Uh, it's non-psychoactive. It's one of the first yeah. uh, exogenous or external agents to show uh, potential uh, anti-cancer effects with certain uh, types of cancer. Uh, very early stage research, but uh, uh, truly, there's a wide range of applications. I, th- I thought we had won that battle. I mean, I, I thought that was there's over, a lot more to do. Well, the, yeah, the, the, but, the endocannabinoid sh- system is only taught in about one of five American medical schools. So doctors right now really are the main problem, the education of doctors, uh, to know to recommend this. Um, and meanwhile, of course, uh, in, the, in the U.S., we're in the middle of being riddled by a horrible opioid painkiller abuse yeah, right. uh, epidemic yeah. that's killing people. I mean, the, the Washington Post, along with writing about Jeff Sessions' new war on drugs, also wrote about in West Virginia, people were dying so fast of opioid addiction that the funeral parlors couldn't keep up with the yeah, yeah. with the funerals for all the for all the dead people so we've literally pr- practically practically got a US federal government drug approval system that is poisoning our own people and meanwhile you know the Huffington Post published a historical fact i mean no one has ever died from a marijuana overdose that has never been recorded it has never happened it's a it's a totally you know safe non toxic let alone a hemp overdose. Uh, yes, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, indeed. Sure. Uh, you actually you can overdose on water before you can overdose on hemp oil. It's actually <laughs> a literal fact. How about iced tea? I don't know. Um, Easy. So, um, well, I yeah, we have more work to do than I thought. Um, meanwhile, just to talk about recreational marijuana because California. Yeah. Uh, finally, this year, joined the civilized world. Uh, I, I, as a Californian, I think it's the third time I voted yes, and we finally won. Finally got it done. Right, yeah. <laughs> How many states are we up to now, Andrew? Do you know? Yes, uh, we have eight recreational states. Um, and Is that uh, all? Wow, yeah. Yeah. That's more. Uh, and the District of Columbia, I believe. Yes, and the District of Columbia. Right. Um well, keep in mind there was four um, just on yeah, election night, yeah. so we we did double, and it's actually amazing. I mean, the American people are speaking about this at the ballot box, yeah. and what they are saying is literally liberal, conservative, forget it. They they have have found out. I think the internet, the access to information, has helped, and they have seen, you know, this stuff is nonsense. The misinformation out there that that used to be out there by people who controlled the the news media so much that there was just no avenues to truth out there. Um, they have seen, you know, the research indicates this is a medicine. Uh, it's not bad. It's it's not, you know, toxic. And, um, you know, this should be legal. And, th- and this has been used to, to throw, you know, essentially millions of African-Americans and Latinos in jail um, is, is, is really, you know, why these laws have existed. And uh, I, I think it's a I think it's a great thing. And uh, but isn't the um, uh, what has been the deciding factor uh, in several of these states the economy the economic benefit of uh, like yes. in Colorado I mean I just remember reading that they were stunned by how much revenue the state received. Yeah. It- 
Yes, it's been uh, quite uh, something for Colorado. I believe uh, about $150 million worth of tax revenue going uh, directly to the state for educational purposes, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's about a $1.3 billion market currently in uh, Colorado. So extrapolating that through the U.S., we can see as much as a $120 billion market if this were fully legalized. Whoa. Right. That's and a lot of jobs. That's a lot of money for people. That's oh, a yeah. lot of employment. Yeah. No, I mean you, to, that to you, me is the biggest story with all of this, right? With 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 what's happening with marijuana just, these days. Yeah, the amount it. of money that these states are making yeah. is unbelievable. Yes, yes. Colorado is probably going to be the global destination for this uh, over Amsterdam. Uh, it really? right now probably is. Yes, yes. And and the, I mean their biggest the problem competitor. Is you can't take it, you you can't take it out of Colorado. That is a problem. You cannot Colorado's transport across state, state lines. <laughs> 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 or you can always do it the old-fashioned way if you want to, you know, take a risk. But yes, you you can't transport across state lines. It, it is a problem. In fact, there are companies like uh uh Dixie. Um Dixie was uh, covered by Newsweek and the famous Pot Barons uh, issue, and on 60 Minutes Twice, uh, they make you know THC infused drinks and and things like that, very famous. Uh, but you know, after obviously uh, Oregon legalized, they're mm-hmm. expanding, but they literally have to start a whole new center of operations in Oregon, in oh. Washington, because they can't oh, move yeah. across state oh, lines, even state in the lines. legal yeah. states. From, even from legal state to legal state. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. So the, the, the businesses, while, they're, while they are booming and they're making literally, I mean, millions and millions of dollars, they are hampered by these bizarre, crazy rules uh, that still exist. They also can't bank still, because the federal government regulates sure. the banking system. So they're forced to be cash only, yeah. uh, which makes them an enormous target for criminals and makes, you know, they can't direct deposit to their employees. They can't process checks. So it's a it's a really interesting way to do business. Yet they are still forced to pay, of course, all of their taxes. On, uh, uh, oh, uh, the government will take their tax money. Yes, and they take their tax they'll money. They'll find sure. a way to collect their tax money. <laughs> they right? do. They take a wheelbarrows full of cash up to the <laughs> <laughs> depository. It's so but, interesting. But you think of it, it's not, it's, it's the, you know, it's the growers, it's the small shops where they're sold. I mean, the, the, the business is related all around it. You know, when you add that up, the economic benefit is is e- enormous, right? It's it's huge, and uh, I mean the, the the best thing is yeah. There's there's more people with jobs. There's just there's just you know money coming in. I mean it, it truly is the fastest growth industry in the country. The other thing that I have not seen, and everybody warned that there's there's going to be all kinds of uh, you know um, pot while driving, um, young kids, teenagers, you know, an explosion of of use among young teenagers. I haven't seen any bad stories about the, uh, a negative impact in any one of these states. Maybe I've just missed it because I'm so supportive. But no, It's been so interesting. We've seen crime down 20 to 25% in Colorado. We see the incidence of drunk driving down about 12%. Uh, the use of alcohol down 11%. Very interesting uh, dynamics that's yeah, really less, happening. Less domestic abuse, less domestic violence. Uh, actually, less drunk driving is, is actually statistically what improves your driving. <laughs> you, you actually see. I mean, you, you know, partly because you know, not that you you want a high driver. And keep in yeah. mind, this is a, this is a, a massive story. I have like a list of journalists that are all like, you know, the second somebody a company has a breathalyzer for marijuana driving, you know, you know, let us oh, know yeah, right wow. away. That, that's what everybody's looking for. But uh, literally, I mean. Uh, Colorado was basically the most amazing 
great experiment and and what it really really proved out despite you know some people basically just spinning lies about it was it it, it worked incredibly the state's economy is doing great mm-hmm. uh the people are happy and and all of the crime statistics are down from how, doing it how big a uh percentage of the market in uh in northern california economy is pot versus grapes <laughs> great question. Well, it, it certainly is a, a great market. We believe actually the total California market uh, once it's developed, uh, probably forty billion dollars worth. So, mm. um, you know, pretty significant uh, you know, piece of the economy. I think uh, the whole industry. I mean, if you add industrial hemp in, uh, we're going to be adding percentage points back to our national uh, GDP. Napa Valley will have an entire different product. Yeah, right. Entire different look. <laughs> <laughs> We're excited. Uh, right now in uh, Los Angeles, they are accepting uh, cultivation uh, applications for permits right so, now. Yeah. So right. Uh, those That's are going to yeah. Those have been announced. They're taking applications. They're well, you guys announce. are real pioneers in this field. I salute you both and thank you so much for coming in. Um, we'll keep up with your work um, when you get you know, more products developed. Come back and. Tell us about it. We'll do that in for sure. both areas. What you're doing is just 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 great, I think, and uh, uh, with a lot of support from the American people, it can only get better and better. Thanks so much, Stuart and uh, Andrew. Thanks for coming in. We'll be right back with uh, Patrick Tucker from Defense One. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. Russian and Syrian airplanes are both taking off from that same airfield we bombed. So, like, what was the point again? Hey, hello, everybody. On a Monday, Monday, April 10, great to see you. Thank you for joining us. It's the Bill Press Show. We're here in our nation's capital, our studio on Capitol Hill, keeping track of the news of the day and bringing it all to you on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Go there, sign up. Be part of the Bill Press team, and you'll get updates from us all throughout the day. We're also looking at you on Free Speech TV, all part of the Young Turks Network. Great to have you with us today with a lot to talk about. Hope you had a great weekend. Uh, This half hour, uh, we're joined by uh, Patrick Tucker from Defense One to talk about... um, what happened in Syria and where we go from here. Hey, Patrick, good to see you. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, not all the questions have been answered yet, right? No, no. More more questions are coming. Uh, I think that that's, that's fair to say. There's yeah. uh, a sense right now hold, that... Okay. Hold that point. All right. That's just a little tease. Okay. All, all right. right. <laughs> and we'll get into the substance uh, in just a minute. But first... This is the, the full court press. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a couple of the big stories making news. So we go to Alabama, the Alabama Supreme Court 
over the weekend ruled that Governor Robert Bentley can be impeached. A court order had been put into place that blocked hearings. Now, this all stems from an inappropriate relationship he had with a former aide, and he was inappropriately using state resources to handle that affair that he was having. So, uh, like I said, they had blocked any kind of hearings on that, but again, the Supreme Court said the impeachment trial can begin. So it should get interesting there down in Alabama. <laughs> the people of Mississippi are cheering. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're exactly. Really, they're so happy. Exactly. Uh, uh, Mississippi would look pretty bad if it weren't for Alabama. <laughs> in many ways, right? Yeah. Thank God for Mississippi is what we always used to say in Alabama. Yeah. Can I, <laughs> uh, can I say that um, Go ahead. He, he looks like the least likely person to have an affair? <laughs> right. Doesn't he? It's yeah. It's just like a... Dweeb. Yeah, right. All right. So if you have bought salad mix from Walmart in the southeastern oh, United States, yes. uh-huh. do not eat Mm-mm. that salad. This Fresh Express it has is. recalled. Don't even open it. The organic market, market side spring mix. It's being recalled from all of its Walmart stores in the southeastern United States Mm-mm. because... Oh, I don't want to hear this. I don't. Oh, E. coli? A dead no. bat was dead found bat. inside of one of the packaged salads in Florida. A dead bat. The now, F- if you are a vampire, you are in luck. You are in luck. <laughs> the FDA said that if... Uh, I don't even want to say this. No. But there is a possibility that there are bat body parts in the salad mix. BBPs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In the industry, they are known as BBP. That's right. So you don't want to eat that salad. So if you have Fresh Express organic market-side spring mix that you got from a Walmart market in uh, the southeastern United States. You know my thing with bats. I mean, I do know my thing about bats. Bill's got a bat thing. He's got a bat thing. I have a bat thing. (laughs) I grew up being told that bats would make nests in your hair. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been afraid. And you believe that. I, been you are a grown-ass man. <laughs> I know. I've been afraid of bats all my life. Yeah, I don't now, like bats I, I either. Find one in my salad? No, thanks. <laughs> no, thank you. And we go to Dallas. Oh. This is what a way to wake up in Dallas. Midnight on Friday, someone hacked into the emergency sirens all around town oh, God. and oh, set God. them off at midnight <laughs> on Friday. Oh. 150 emergency oh. sirens all went off at 1142 oh, on Friday night. Oh. It went 90 minutes before they were able to turn no. them all off. Yeah. So. Can you imagine? If you went to sleep early on Friday night, you got a rude awakening in Dallas. It also probably scared the hell out of you. Yeah. I'll bet George Bush was pissed. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Just think about that. Yeah. <laughs> he probably raised hell. What the hell is going on? Yeah, Laura, right. get out there and turn that siren off. <laughs> <laughs> On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. Here we are on a Monday, April 10, uh, The Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., with the news of the day. And I want to get your thoughts on what you think about it all. Good to see you today. Thank you for joining us. Hope you had a great weekend. Uh, watched a little bit of the Masters yesterday, a spectacular finish. Uh, but let us know your comments on the news of the day on Twitter, uh, at BP Show. Again, we're here on Capitol Hill, 
with Patrick Tucker from Defense One, technology editor there, to talk uh, about all things Syria. Uh, this have, I, I can't get that bad story out of my head. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, about you know, Imagine opening thing of salad. Yeah. Salad greens and finding a, a, a dead mm. bat. Excuse me, bat parts. Bat parts. Yes, it was a dead bat. I mean, it was a dead bat, but uh, they were the, the implication is that there were some parts missing. It, and it's got this, such a like that brand is so innocuous sounding. It's like mm-hmm. Fresh Fields Organic, yeah, right? like spring mix. Yeah. And there's like a you know dead horrible bat. creature of the night rotting posing the, in there. It's, but the truth is, it was probably only one bat in one batch, <laughs> right? I mean, one. Yeah. It, like every container did not have a dead bat in it. Bat parts. Bad parts. bad parts. Yeah, bad parts. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that gets me. Yeah. They found part of a dead bat. I don't. Uh, oh, the rest man. of it. Yeah, that's even know. weirder. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm going full. But I did tell you about my that. phobia. I ruined your morning, huh? <laughs> you did my phobia about bats. But I did get a bat out of our house once. A live bat got into our house here in Washington D.C. And I. How did you get the bat out? You know how? I put my parka on with the hood up. So, so they not... couldn't nest in your hair? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. <laughs> I did. Oh, man. Oh, that's and then good. I got a container and I put it over the container, got right. it in the container, and then took it out. Jamie, okay. can you imagine how great that would have been to see? Yeah. I think we should create a film to reenact that oh, whole scene. Oh, God. So if you uh, have a problem with bats in your house? Yeah. Here's yeah, the man give to call. call. <laughs> All right. Oh. Um, bats aside, <laughs> Patrick. So, yeah. um, fifty-nine cruise missiles. We hit the everybody. Even most Democrats. John Kerry particularly mm-hmm. said it was a proportionate strike, limited, targeted to that airfield where the chemical weapons had those bombs had come from. Right. Right. Uh, and so everybody said, okay, for that one strike. But then you see the by the end of the day, planes were taking off from the same airfield. Right, right. So well, what do we know about the, first of all, how effective this strike was? So the the White House has claimed, claimed in a, a, a note that they put out on Saturday that the purpose of the strike was to uh, destroy the ability of the Assad regime to continue to use uh, chemical weapons. They think sarin. Uh, uh, they can't yeah. stop the Assad regime from continuing to use chlorine bombs because you can manufacture that from from household goods. Uh-huh. Uh, but they uh, put out a note saying to destroy the ability of the Assad regime to use chemical weapons like sarin and to degrade their ability to use chemical. Do we know it's sarin, sarin yet? It's probably sarin. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. That's a very because at this point uh, the Turks did an autopsy on several of the uh, victims. And they determined independently that it was sarin. As soon as this event happened, uh, a lot of people, medical professionals uh, in country that were actually working with the population, uh, put up a video that was very accessible on open source, uh, through open source outlets. And Mm -hmm. uh, the Turks did an autopsy. Our own DNI has said that it was sarin. Yeah, okay. So uh, it was was definitely sarin. And the... uh, the Assad regime, of course, immediately denied it. Uh, the Russians said what it probably was was a strike against a facility where uh, terrorists or basically the opposition was stockpiling sarin. So uh, even yeah. they've admitted at this point that it's oh, that huh. prohibited right. chemical nerve agent. So, uh-huh. uh, But they've also come up with a narrative that we disregard as completely impossible. Right. So again, the White House said their goal was to destroy that facility. Yeah, to destroy their ability to use uh, sarin and chemical weapons like that uh, to dissuade them from using chemical weapons to destroy their ability to uh, use that facility to launch sarin attacks. 
Uh, but they didn't. It didn't do that, did it? Well, it's uh, if it, they can still take off from the same airstrips. They didn't bomb the actual runways, and uh-huh. uh, they've said that the use of cruise missiles against runways uh, is just a, a waste of a one point five million dollar missile. Uh, so don't do that. Um, <laughs> And and also the uh, Saad regime has different airfields it can take off from. There, it's yeah, it's not a yeah. regime that's in a uh, uh, shortage of of uh, jet fuel. What they have is a very particular and limited stockpile of of prohibited uh, chemical weapons. Like we said, the the chlorine stuff they can manufacture pretty much at their own discretion. But the uh, they were supposed to have gotten rid of all of these super prohibited ones. Uh, they did get rid of a, t- a lot of them. They did get rid of thirteen. Uh, 1,300 tons, but uh, we've suspected for a long time, since 2014, that they probably retained some, and uh, we don't know exactly how much. Obviously, they did. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the talk Thursday um, during the day, Mm -hmm. once Cable got the the idea that something was going to happen or might happen that night, and they were actually talking about it, boy, it it was all that that covered cable news. I was on one of the shows to talk about something else, and we ended up talking about uh, what might happen in Syria. People were talking at the time that, uh, and John McCain was saying, and Lindsey Graham were saying, we have to shut down their Air Force, basically. Yeah. Eliminate their their uh, their ability to mm-hmm. fly any jets or any bombers, which would have meant, I mean, that would have been a massive operation, right? Right. Because well, it's a pretty big country. Every airfield, every plane, every runway. Yeah. Yeah. See, and this is the whole thing. There was, a, I remember during the presidential campaign, there was a lot of question of whether or not we should be setting up a no-fly zone over Syria. Yeah. Uh, at one point, Michelle Flournoy, who was uh, Hillary Clinton's probable pick for defense secretary, where that uh, uh, campaign result in the presidency, had suggested that we should look at a no-bombing zone, which means basically a no-fly zone over for partic- very particular areas. Uh, and it's acceler- it. It escalates as a uh, operation, particularly now, as uh, since uh, September, uh, Russia has been moving in more and more expensive, more and more high tech, and more and more effective anti aircraft. Uh, equipment, Whoa. radar, right. right? So it's yeah. like all of our kind of talk about it politically that played out during the campaign was met on the other side by actual steps to make that much harder to do. So you want to do a no-fly zone. Mm-hmm. It sounds uh, incredibly innocuous, right? It, it doesn't yeah, sound right. like a really serious thing. We're going to set up a no-fly zone, and that doesn't sound like escalation. This is not Libya. This <laughs> There are a lot of anti-aircraft uh, uh, systems in this country now, and they right. pose a tremendous threat to any strikers that would uh, uh, try and bomb them, basically. All right. So we've talked about whether or not it was effective. Was this strike legal? That's a, uh, something a lot of folks are going to be uh, questioning. It wasn't sanctioned by Congress. Uh, it wasn't. So they're going to be arguing that it's uh, probably okay under the previous authorization for the use of force. That stems from um, Al Qaeda's attack against us in two thousand and one, and that's a little bit strained. But uh, if you can declare war against Iraq on the basis of that authorization of use of force, then you can sort of declare um, uh, authorization of use of force covers a war against Syria. And we're not at war with Syria yet, but this was an attack on on them. Uh, so. The legality of it, I think you're going to see Tim Kaine pushing really hard for more of a uh, congressional stamp of approval on any further action. I think that that's, that's inevitably going to happen, particularly for him, because he's been really good and, and really focused on that authorization of the use of force. and but whether or not President been, Obama used the AUMF yeah. also for the attack of bombing of Libya. Yeah. 
Same, right. same thing, right? They did well. It, this was originally against Al Qaeda, mm-hmm. but ISIS developed when Al Qaeda Al Qaeda disappears, ISIS appears, and right. so therefore the AUMF also covers ISIS now. And then we could right. You, you could go right down the list, right? Right. And the the link between Gaddafi and Al Qaeda is not a, a thing that ever exists or ever existed. It was a completely different regime that we had, uh, you know. Uh, Moved against as part of a civil war that was unconnected to 2001 by any, uh, except through the most uh, spurious of, of threads. So um, how we don't have a uh, legal authorization to suddenly right. strike uh, Syria. Having said that, uh, they've also committed <laughs> a lot of war crimes. And that's something that we've rallied the international community to talk about, uh, to impose sanctions on the Syrian regime against. We're probably going to be pursuing additional sanctions. So, so is our policy today... Um, that Bashar al-Assad must go or um, he's better than the alternative? That's something that uh, administration folks have floated within the last, like, 42 hours. Um, Which? That, that Bashar al-Assad must go. And prior to uh, this strike, uh, really prior to the, the chemical weapons attack, then the administration line was, uh, we can live with him. And what that does is that emboldens, I, I, I mean, I'm sorry, I, I think a, an Obama administration official would probably say that what that does is that emboldens the Assad regime to continue to use things like chlorine bombs because it shows, and also uh, incredibly imprecise bombings, and also, uh, you know, put entire populations under siege and starve them and, and prohibit them from receiving aid. That uh, when you say, ah, we can live with him despite all of these things that, he, that he's done, then that's how you get... Um, this escalation against these populations, which is what we saw here. But isn't there uh, – I'm putting ISIS aside for just a second, although it's almost impossible to do. Mm-hmm. But I think Rex Tillerson maybe raised the point. Um, if you if, – if Assad goes, mm-hmm. um, then what happens, right? I mean that does raise the question about yeah. – Who's who steps into the vacuum? We saw that in Iraq mm-hmm. with Saddam Hussein, yeah. and we saw that we see that now in Libya uh, with Muammar Gaddafi. Yeah, yeah, and we were um, as big a uh, disaster as uh, Iraq post Saddam Hussein was. We were actually much better prepared to deal with that power vacuum than we would be in Syria. So there isn't a good answer for who takes over that power uh, once the Assad regime leaves. Uh, there's no real leader of the rebels, right, that could say, okay, this no, is and, the and logical successor. This is the- Right, and they've also basically lost Aleppo. I mean, so th- that uh, uh, opposition is, as a coordinated and unified opposition, really on its last legs. Now, and this is one of the uh, sort of points of confusion about this. That's not to say that the uh, Assad regime, uh, though they are on uh, the verge of moving that uh, – coordinated opposition into obsolescence, that, that's not to say that they aren't incredibly fragile. Uh, and from that fragility as a regime comes this use of uh, these more and more deplorable tactics against these populations. Um, they are a regime that uh, continues to require a huge amount of support from uh, Iranian both uh, enlisted mm-hmm. but also uh, sort of jihadist uh, militia groups from uh, thousands of Hezbollah fighters from Lebanon. Uh, And the thing is, none of those foreign fighters that are in the country working for the Assad regime, as well as, you know, Russian Spetsnaz forces that... uh, You've got Russians, Iranians, and Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. And you also have... foreign forces in there helping 
Right. Exactly. It's the Syrian government. Yeah, you have uh, regular Iranian army. You have uh, uh, Shia jihadists. You have mercenaries from Afghanistan. You also have all of these, right, all these Hezbollah guys. And the thing is that none of these guys sign up for these missions because they're super in love with Bashar al-Assad. That's not really where this is about. I mean, Hezbollah is an organization. It's raison d'etre. is uh, the expulsion of Israel. And that's why that's why people sign up to join Hezbollah. They don't sign up to join Hezbollah to go, you know, conduct yeah. urban warfare missions against Sunni populations in Aleppo. So it's incredibly fragile, this military power base. Um, and and that's why you see this tactic from the Assad regime. And it's also why this tactic will continue. So we've kind of boxed ourselves into a very difficult corner, which is the same thing that the Obama administration was worried about for so long. Um, once you say, well, now we're declaring a red line-ish type thing, then you're basically daring the Assad regime to show the people that he's tyrannizing the international community has no influence over me. It is my will that I will enforce against you, not their will that they'll enforce against me. So All I right, don't so know what said, our game plan is here. Which I, I think is correct. We are not at war with nope, Syria. Not officially. We've not just, officially. We, no, we've right. just uh, launched a, an attack yeah. against one of their facilities right. using 59 Tomahawk missiles, right. but not war. But we are at war against ISIS. We are at war against ISIS, yes. Okay. Now, whatever happened to the old saw that the enemy of my enemy is my friend? <laughs> it doesn't apply in Syria, does it? It doesn't apply in Syria, so no. So we have two enemies in Syria. We do. We've, and, and we've always said that the Assad regime has to go. We've, that's always been our, our – and that's the reason why ISIS exists. Well, it was exists. under Obama. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and it wasn't under Trump until very recently, and yeah, now we've adopted right. a policy, uh, at least according so to Nikki you, Haley's statements over the last three days, that uh, the regime was – and Rex Tillerson, too, has said that there's no future role for him, but we don't know how so he – can you be against that. both at the same time and uh, and, and is – you know what I mean? Is, yeah, is, short, is, yeah. Is Bashar al-Assad – is he doing anything against ISIS? Um, that's uh, not so much, but he claims to be. Yeah. The same with the Russians. The Russians uh, have, uh, since they began their involvement in that uh, conflict, they've always claimed we're working alongside the United States to uh, destroy ISIS. But if you talk if to- If only. Yeah. If you, if you talk to uh, uh, General David Goldfein, who's the uh, Air Force Chief of Staff, has, you can throw up a map and he'll say the thing about those guys, about the Russians, and the reason why we're not super anxious to work with them uh, is because they say they're fighting against ISIS, but here's where they're bombing. Here's where we're bombing. Here's where ISIS is. You can see which parts of the map yeah, overlap. Right, you know, right. uh, they're uh, bombing they're, these these opposition centers near Aleppo, where meanwhile ISIS is in. Uh, it's it's this weird ribbon that stretches. It, it concentrates in the uh, northeastern portion yeah. of the country. It's bombing, different places. They're bombing civilian populations mm -hmm. of Syria to help Bashar al-Assad. Right. They're not really bombing. Yeah, ISIS right. targets. Right. Uh, and there's uh, they're bombing opposition groups that uh, aren't affiliated yeah. with ISIS. There's having said that, it's a it's a mess. These uh, opposition groups, you've got uh, a bunch of moderate oppositions that we've been working with that are basically inches away from al Nusra fighters in these areas where we have very little control. Um, so it's uh, how do you the question is, can you uh, have a war against Bashar al-Assad and uh, against ISIS? And the answer is not well. Not one that you actually is going to connect with a victory. Jesus, what a mess! I know it's that, a total mess. Yeah, I know it's 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 uh it's basically like finding bat parts in your salad. Just <laughs> 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 <There's> bats <coughs> parts everywhere. <laughs> are are we making any progress against you know, on one side of it against ISIS? Uh, yeah, ISIS is. <coughs> 
ISIS is not advancing uh, their territorial gains anymore. Uh, they're resource challenged. They're, uh, it looks like they could lose Mosul. Or they're about to lose Mosul. About and, to and, lose Mosul. And when we say about to, what that means is that we've entered a stage of uh, even more difficult and dangerous urban warfare, but one where the momentum is clearly shifted yeah. to uh, What's it, like, Iraqi maybe, security maybe two forces. two-thirds of the city now is under right. Iraqi forces. Right? right, right, exactly. And then it becomes— And then Raqqa? Right. Uh, and, and Raqqa's next. Um, so they'll be in the months ahead. We'll be hearing, and this pushes back a coordinated push for Raqqa in, in a, a very serious way. And that's that's one casualty, one consequence of of this action since Thursday is that the fight against ISIS becomes much more difficult and complicated. Why? Because we can't uh, bring the same level of coordination that we could have uh, to. <clears throat> We had a like an arrangement with the Russians, oh. not where we um, are gonna re like really cooperate on operations, but where we do cooperate on like not shooting each other. Uh, it was called, and this is the thing. This is because there was a lot of question about like what exactly did uh, Donald Trump or the Trump administration say to Russia before the strike? Uh, because they did. There was a phone call. Uh, so there's the one that I've heard, and there's the one that uh, I, I've uh, that I yeah, know exists. That's a very interesting question. Right. Yeah. Right. right. So um, every day there's uh, an airman that sits in what's called a CAOC, Combined Air Operations Center, in Syria. It's basically just a room. And in that room is a phone, and that phone is a direct line to his Russian counterpart. And every day they engage in an incredibly important conversation that basically averts World War III. Our guy and their guy. And our guy and their guy. And uh -huh. they, they, uh, they engage in a conversation, that the intent of which is basically to avert World War III, where we give them it's only good, as much information thing, right, would, yeah. as, as we need them to have to not shoot us. And they give us only as much information as we need to not shoot them as we go about doing very different things in this country. Basic. So right. fighter planes flying in the same area. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. And also, like, uh, we're going to do an operation maybe here. And we, would on we don't say all of them, but uh, we've got uh, special operations forces embedded with uh, opposition groups. And if you're going to be targeting that opposition group and we've got a guy there... We can't. We have to be very careful about what we say, but we also can't have that guy get hit by Russian, uh, yeah. imprecise yeah. Russian bombs. Right. So uh, there was some question about whether or not that was in jeopardy as a result of the strike, and uh, I'm told by the Pentagon that that call daily continues, as of course it would, because we basically give them information about our targeting decisions, which is a weird thing, like aspect of this too, from a pure military perspective. Uh, but it all. What it also means is that they're. If there was any real uh, sense that we might be able to move forward with them in partnership to better target ISIS around Raqqa, this puts uh, this makes discussions about how to do that much more complicated mm. uh, and dangerous. Really, I, I'm well, just so like when you hear when, like to, to hear you talk about that and set that up and walk us through all that, mm -hmm. it's it almost sounds unwinnable. I mean, obviously we have to define what winning looks like right? yeah but like i really have to question like what in the hell are we doing yeah well yeah did we win in afghanistan right <laughs> did we win in iraq i mean yeah winning uh, had, had the definition i mean yeah. th this just sounds impossible to, to, to navigate yeah um well there's even theory. with by the way like some of the smartest <laughs> military minds that we've had in the past and i'm not so sure that we're dealing with that now mm-hmm but, like, so, especially now. Good God. Well, what does winning look like? Right. What does winning look like? It, it, it might look like, if you were to actually frame it, the Turks, the Russians, the United States, 
and a uh, coalition of some of these groups, including Kurds, sitting down at the table, same table with the with the Turks right now, which would be uh, sort of phantasmagorical, all sitting down having a conversation with Bashar al-Assad about a timeline for his exit from power, uh, one where he feels like there's because he's understands that this is also uh, he's he can only fight to a stalemate. So a all of us sitting down with him uh, and talking about an exit uh, of him from power resulting in reforms uh, and us just sort of sweetening that pot until we all reach a, an agreement. Um, that's probably what winning would look like. And so everyone's right now is is fighting for as much stuff that they can bring to any future negotiations. That one's not the one that they're talking about right now. Right now there's going to be, in the interim, and in the next year, there's probably going to be a bunch of negotiations between the Assad government and uh, the uh, opposition forces that are surrendering, the ones that yeah. actually have come yeah. to the table. Right. Uh, and those are actually the most moderate ones are the ones that have come to the table that he's uh, <laughs> basically bombed into uh, uh, submission. Uh, Al-Nusra has not, and the Kurds have not. Uh, but winning would look like that, I think. Winning would look like a broad coalition of folks coming together and Bashar al-Assad saying, here's what happened. I'm going to leave power eventually, and here's how that looks for, as far as, here's what I'll take. Yeah. My take? That's never going to happen. Um, I want to come back to this phone call that did or did not take place before right. the, the bombing of this airfield, uh, because uh, I read somewhere where there was a call to the Russians saying, we're going to bomb this airfield. You've got some guys there. Get them out of the way. Right. So there's. Did that happen? Yes. The Pentagon does that. The Pen the, the, they talked about this in the briefing on Friday, and uh, it was an, an absolutely fascinating briefing. So there was that Kayak to Kayak call, uh, which happens every day. But on Friday, that Kayak to Kayak call, the substance of it was basically uh, we're hitting this airfield. And. That's all you need to know about that. And they yeah. didn't talk about, like, well, oh. are you going to shoot back at us with your anti-aircraft yeah. radar yeah. that you've got there? They didn't talk about, are you going to tell the Syrians? They didn't get any assurances, and they didn't make any assurances. They just said, we're hitting this airfield, and click. It's a weird call to make <laughs> for, that, right. for that airman. It's, it's such a yeah. weird historic yeah. moment. And next thing you know, uh, we hit that airfield. So th we did... A, in order to we gave them a heads further, up, we did give we gave the Russians a heads up, and we because they are did an the Russians ally of, tell the Syrians? Do we know they are their ally? We don't know, uh, but that they are the ally of the Syrian government. So yeah. uh, if I were going to be the Syrian regime, I would wonder, well, how much? What is our information sharing agreement with you guys? Well, because we would like to know that. Who in the uh, circle around Trump gets the, um, if you want to use the word credit, but I mean. Uh, whose idea was this? Was this is this McMaster's? Is this John Mattis? Is this Steve Bannon? I mean, uh, it's not Steve Bannon. No, it's ain't Steve Bannon. No, it's, it's <laughs> definitely not that. No, no definitely Bannon not favorite. that. But um, or is do you, who do you think? I mean, my, who's the principal? So my my speculation about how this all went down is you've got Coates, the new head of the Director of National Intelligence, comes yeah. to Donald Trump with a series of photographs, and he expresses high confidence in the <laughs> intelligence community uh, conclusion. This was Saren. This was Assad. These are kids that died. Yeah. Uh, Donald Trump, who I, I don't see any sort of grand scheme to shore up bad poll numbers through a, a limited tomahawk Not a strike. wag the dog. Okay. I, well, he's just not that strategic. He's a very, uh, we've come to know this personality. He's an incredibly impulsive human being. Mm -hmm. I think that that's fair to say, and I'm sorry if that sounds like overly political, but he's, a, he's an right. impulse-driven yeah. human. I think that he probably reacted to that and said, we've got to do something. And then H.R. Uh, McMaster probably, they, they've said this. Um, 
they looked at a variety of options, and a limited tomahawk strike, which is the use of what's called standoff yeah. weapons, was the one that posed the least amount of risk to the United States. Yeah, uh, and to to service to and service guys. Seemed to be the most proportionate. Yeah, and, and seemed so then, proportionate. Yeah. And then Mattis just carries it out. Right, said. right. So they they were probably looking at uh, all so sorts the of options. Strategist might have been McMaster. Do you mm-hmm. think more than? Yeah, I think that McMaster probably said, okay, if you want to do something, Mr. President, and you've said that that's the thing that we're now going to do, here are options at various level of attractiveness. Um, and one, you use uh, jets that are going to shoot sidewinders, and they've got yeah. anti-aircraft stuff, and that could really escalate things bad if uh, they target those. And another one, you've got standoff weapons, which are these uh, tomahawks that we're going to launch off a destroyer. And that's going to be pretty limited impact. You can maybe take out some of the chemical weapons that they have at this facility that we know that they used. You can send a symbolic message primarily. Yeah. Uh, but it does show that we're willing to use force, and that's the one that's going to have the least risk. And then the president says, okay, of those options, this is the one that I like the most. Right. And now we will see as uh, time develops whether yeah. there's any strategy that uh, emerges. Uh, we never saw that Damn. under the previous administration. I'm not very hopeful we'll see one under this one either. Uh, but you're on top of it. Patrick, <laughs> thank you so much for coming in. Hey, thanks, thanks for, for bringing me. us up to date. Yeah. We'll continue to follow it with your help at Defense One, DefenseOne.com. Meanwhile, there's Neil Gorsuch, there's infighting at the White House. Uh, there's all kinds of other news going on. Paul Singer from USA Today, uh, he covers that territory, covers it well. He'll be, join us next. Here's what I think Assad's telling Trump by flying from this base F you. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hey, how about it? 34 minutes. Whoops. There we go. Uh, It is uh, Monday, April 10. (laughs) Some habits never die. The Bill Press Show on this uh, Monday uh, coming to you live as part of the Young Turks Network from our studio on Capitol Hill. Looking at you on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show on Free Speech TV. And uh, how about it? WCPT out in Chicago. We're brought to you today by the American Federation of Government Employees, in season, out of season. The good men and women of the AFGE under President J. David Cox keep those federal agencies running, serving Americans, and proud to work for America every day. Salute them and thank them for the support of the program. Well, Washington is so hard to keep track of what's going on at the White House, what's going on at the Congress. Lots of changes. Paul Singer from USA Today. He knows uh, everything about everything, and he joins us in studio. A little bit about a something. neighbor from Capitol Hill. Hello, Paul. Nice happy to happy see Passover. You. Good to see you. Yeah, you? everything good. Yeah, yeah, isn't it nice that Congress gives us two weeks off? Right? You know, it's perfect. And the spring has sprung. The grasses riz. It's yeah, spectacular right? time for a holy week. The one for thing you must say and... about Washington is springtime is spectacularly beautiful. It's here. beautiful. Yeah. yeah, keep the Claritin in your pocket. But aside from that, it's <laughs> right. all four days of it. It's yeah. really right. beautiful. Yeah. It's so nice. It's <laughs> all right. So, uh, Jamie, it was Mike Pence on the floor of the uh, presiding over the Senate on Friday who made the big no surprise announcement. The eyes are fifty-four. The nays are forty-five. 
the nomination of Neil M. Gorsuch of Colorado to be an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States is confirmed. There you go. He will be sworn in today at 11 o'clock in the Rose Garden by a man he once clerked for on the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy. First time there's been a justice with a two justices, one of whom clerked for the other one really? on the Supreme Court. That's interesting piece of trivia. I yeah, like that. a little bit yeah. of trivia. So, uh, and we know how we got there. We got there because Mitch McConnell changed the rules of the so-called nuclear option. Uh, does it make any difference in the long run? Um It'll make a difference in the long run only in the sense that uh, over the next 30 years, if this continues, you will end up with a uh, uh, Supreme Court that is party line. You will have a bunch of uh, Supreme Court justices who have been elected without or, or appointed to the seat and then confirmed without a single vote of the opposition party, which is historic, bizarre and bad for America. That's the part that's going to make a difference. Um, whether it makes a difference in the operation of the Senate in between now and then, I don't know. So it'll make a difference uh, in the kind of nominees that are put forward? Yep. Yeah, because there's no need to get a consensus nominee. There's no need to get a vote from the uh, other party. Uh, there's, you know, basically this is going to be just a ram them through like everything else. You know, I believe it was 2000. I'm going back and doing my math now. I think it was the the the, the Gore Supreme Court Gore v. Bush mm-hmm. Bush v. Gore, whichever one was the yeah yeah uh, Bush uh, v. Gore Bush v. Gore. Um, you know, we talked about the fact that that it was going to uh, damage the status, the standing, the public perception of the Supreme Court because people would think it was becoming a political court. Well, we've gone past that line, and you know, it is now become it has become a court <laughs> that is simply a selection of political appointees, you know, jammed into a room together, and right. it's going to become more and more that way over the next thirty years, assuming that this standard holds and the U.S. Senate remains essentially crippled by its divisions. So, so all all any president will need are the members of his or her own party. Correct. Um, and in this case, Republicans, they got a couple of Democratic votes. They didn't need them. Actually, Correct. they had, they had and, 51. And that's, and that's you know, you are, you are getting to the point where the next question becomes, do you start to do this with legislation? And if you start to do this with legislation, then the Senate just becomes a slightly smaller, less interesting body of the U.S., a uh, replica of the U.S. House representative. I was going to say, yes, the House is already doing this with legislation. Yeah, and always has. With the so-called Hastert rule, particularly now. Well, I mean, the, the um, House of Representatives has always been a place where the minority had very little to do except sit in the back and yell, um, you know, and sometimes they hold protests on the floor of the House and then they, you know, declare themselves victorious and move on while their legislation dies. That's how the House works. The Senate was supposed to be the place, the saucer that cooled the drink, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, not now. Now the Senate has become a place where basically we stand off. Right. Uh, and God forbid that there be any tension uh, around or inside the White House. Um, now, you know, <laughs> there, with every administration. Game of Thrones. Right. Game of, <laughs> it is Game of. With every administration, there's. I remember in the early days of the Clinton administration, you know, there was always who's on top, who's in charge, who's got the president's ear, who doesn't. But there seems to be an extraordinary amount of infighting in this White House. Do you agree or are we just making it up? Well, I think there's an extraordinary amount of infighting because, um, and I mean this with no disrespect to the president and this administration, is that they don't have a lot of big achievements to talk about. You know, winning is the great disinfectant. 
uh, when you're winning and you're getting things done and you have successes to trumpet, the backstabbing and stuff sort of goes away uh-huh. yeah. because we can all say, hey, look what we did together. We did a great thing. You know, When you don't have the victories to talk about, then all you have to talk about is whose fault it is you don't have a victory. It's that guy. Oh, it's that guy. No, it's totally that guy. And then, of course, in this administration, you have the other interesting um, uh, factor uh, that a lot of the folks that Trump brought in by, by design are outsiders who've never had to govern. Um, and they didn't like people in government. And now they're sitting in these small rooms with people who've spent years governing, trying to decide who's at fault for the fact that nothing's getting done. And, right. and, and Trump has bred a culture around him of just, you know, fighting, clawing, kicking your way to the top. That's right. Whether it's with his own company or with his TV show. I mean, that literally was the entire premise of his TV show, right? Clawing your way out of a group of That's whatever right. 12 people. And, and he, By any means necessary. And he also <laughs> has done some stuff that I think he has not established clarity of purpose inside the White House. And so you end up with things like yesterday on the Sunday shows, you know, the question, what are we going to do about Assad? And uh, Rex Tillerson is out giving one answer and Nikki Haley is out giving the other answer. And you think, well, this can't be a thriving, functioning organization because they they don't have the same message on the critical right. issue of the day. Right. Like everybody get on the same page. It makes it much easier if the if the leader, the CEO in this case, the president of the United States has told everybody, "Here's where we stand. Everybody get in line and let's stand there." And I don't think he's done that and and that's where you get into these points of confusion. Well, it's funny. Originally, the talk was about that Steve Bannon and Reince Priebus were in a knife fight, right? About yeah. who was going to be the the the, the more important one. Uh, and I would have taken Bannon. One. I, I would have yeah, Oh, yeah, taken and that knife fight, in a knife absolutely. fight, totally. But now that sort of disappeared, and the real challenge now, and uh, apparently for real, is between Steve Bannon and his ally, Steve Miller, and Jared Kushner, right. son-in-law. The New Yorkers, the Democrats. Uh, and Gary, Gary Cohn and Ivanka, right? Right, the, the, right. the New, York's, New Yorkers, the Democrats, Almost in this case, you would say the reasonable moderates almost who think that Trump looks like he's just too wild and they've got to kind of calm him down a little bit. And then Bannon, who is still go for the barricades, let's burn the damn place down. Right. right? Um, who wins that fight? Well, this has always been the question. You know, the 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 Cones and the Ivankas and the Jared Kushners represent um, Donald Trump circa 2005. Those are all the things Donald Trump believed, all the things Donald Trump said. Donald Trump was a Democrat. Uh, he was not yeah. an ideological extremist. Um, and at some point in his late 60s, Donald Trump had a conversion moment that I can't quite figure out where it was. Maybe it was around the time they were trying to build a mosque on yeah. <laughs> Fifth Avenue, yeah. New York, whatever it was. But at some point, Donald Trump had a conversion uh, moment. Uh, ground Zero. Ground Zero. Yeah, the Ground Zero yeah. Mosque. Yeah. Um, and, and then he became a birther uh, in the full-throated right. birther movement, um, and he joined forces with the sort of the 2015-2016 Donald Trump. Um, and that's where he gets the Bannons and, yeah, and, right. and the Millers and, and the rest of the sort of, uh, you know, the pitchfork wing so, of the party. Right. So the question is, which Donald Trump ends up governing? Is it the Donald Trump of 2005 or the Donald Trump of 2017. And the other interesting question to ask is, where is Mike Pence in all this, right? Mike Pence is the like the truest conservative in the White House. 
He's been a conservative since he was 15. You know, here's a guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he is a true ideological religious conservative uh, and, totally. and, yeah. and was supposed to be the one who could whisper in the ear of Congress and get them on board, which as the moment has not yet worked. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, there are these interesting different factions and the president has not exerted the kind of ideological uh, discipline that most other administrations do to run the place. I mean, in in, in uh, George W. Bush's administration, maybe it was Dick Cheney who was, you know, the the cracker of the whip. Um, I'm not sure who it is now in the, in the Trump White House. But if you look at um, which side might prevail, so Bannon, the the first disaster was the Muslim ban, right? That was Steve Bannon. His fingerprints are all over that. Yeah, and it, it was crashed po- and poorly conceived twice. Yeah, right. Uh, and rushed out, and the whole thing. That thing's so still then, kicking around somewhere, right? Though it's still in a, <laughs> no, really. yeah, well, like uh, it's in a court somewhere. No, no, no. They're, they're, yeah, both of them yeah. are, 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 are on hold by the courts, and eventually probably will make it to the Supreme Court. But certainly crashed and burned. And then uh, you've got health care, which didn't do much better. No. Uh, and probably Reince Priebus is the one who pushed that more than anyone because of his friendship with Paul Ryan. I'm not sure where Jared Kushner was in the middle of all of that. Well, and healthcare um, is interesting because again, Trump was clearly giving I different think opinions. Was in Iraq, actually. Yeah, Kushner's right. in Iraq doing <laughs> you know one of the fifty-eight things he does for a living. Yeah. You know, um, but I mean, the, the healthcare is one of those things where the message was unclear, and and people were walking out of meetings with Donald Trump and Mike Pence with different understandings of what they had just heard. But isn't uh, and I think the truth of it is, as Peter just alluded to. That Donald Trump loves this. I mean, I in think a he, sense. Does. Yeah, he, he does. He, he loves this chaos around him. Yeah, he yeah. loves it. This, like everybody was saying. I, no. I remember there was a moment mm-hmm. after his press conference a month or so ago, uh, which was one of the more bizarre things we've ever seen in hashtag this town. Yeah. But everybody was saying, "Oh God, this looks like a guy who's on the verge of a meltdown," and he looks like a president who is been dealing with a scandal for six years and is falling apart. And I was just thinking to myself, like, no, I like, I really do think he loves this and he doesn't care. Like a meltdown to Donald Trump. It's not, yeah. I mean, it's not going to hurt him. Well, and there is, there is this sort of Bugs Bunny uh, effect to the whole thing, right? Yeah. You know, a Bugs Bunny cartoon is like this. Yeah. There's chaos going on everywhere, but Bugs always comes up going, yeah, what's up, Doc? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Everything's yeah, exactly. good for Bugs. Right? Exactly. And, and, and to some degree, you get this with Donald Trump is that, you know, his personal branding is of critical primary importance to him. Sure. Everything else in there, you know, whoever is, is falling or failing or winning or losing or looking goofball, he cares less about. Okay. Yeah. So on his personal branding, pre-serious strike, his approval rating is down to 35%, which everyone point is a record low for mm-hmm. an incoming president. Uh, what impact will the serious strike have either on his approval rating or on his... You know, just general feeling about his administration. Well, change my view of him. I mean, I my question has been all along: Can Donald Trump act like a president and do something presidential? I mean, in this case, he acted like a president. He he sat down, he met with his advisors, he considered some options, he took a relatively limited military strike. Good policy or bad policy is not my department. Like I don't I don't judge whether it was the right idea, but it was a a reasoned decision based on the advice of military counsel and. Notice he didn't tweet about it afterwards. He didn't brag. He didn't yell. He gave a statement at the podium. And it was all going presidential until a day or two later when uh, Assad started flying off those runways and Trump tweets, well, you know, you don't bomb runways because you're easy to rebuild, which is, you know, don't get defensive. Don't get chippish. 
let's continue to be presidential. That's got to help him. It's yeah. got to help him look. It, it helps him look serious. It helps him look in control. It helps him look like he's not a lunatic. Uh, and it helps with his base to say, you know what? We can take the strong military action that Obama could not. That's good, right? That's good advertising, good marketing for Donald Trump. No, and when he made his statement Thursday night, late Thursday night at Mar-a-Lago, uh, it was dignified. He read it from the prompter. Mm -hmm. He did not ad lib. He did not say this is a beautiful strike or, you know, <laughs> like believe best me. strike ever. Bigly. It's the biggest strike ever, the best ever, or whatever. No, just read it uh, as written for him. And as you say, to the extent that he can ever look presidential, he did at that moment. Yeah. And, and I think that that helps. Um, establish for people. I mean, one of the things that I think drives uh, uh, the negative views and the and the poor polling standing is the sense of chaos and who's in control. You know, Americans, just like everybody else, we get scared. We don't like chaos. We don't like instability. We like order, discipline, some form of knowing where we're going next. Um, and and over the last three or four days of last week, Donald Trump established that sense, and that was good. Now, of course, let's see how long it lasts. You know, right. this is not a so yeah. everybody said after health care what he needs now. He needs a win, right? Mm -hmm. He needs a win. Is Syria the win? Is Gorsuch the win? Well, Gorsuch is a great moment for them. I mean, and, and Gorsuch is an important win not only because Donald Trump gets to say, I won something, but Gorsuch is a promise he made to the evangelicals particularly, but to the conservative base of the Republican Party who never was entirely sure where Donald Trump stood on things. Gorsuch was a promise and a commitment, and he has delivered on that promise. He has, and we had a story Thursday or Friday, one of my colleagues wrote the story that, um, you know, the the uh, anti-abortion group, the Susan B. Anthony group, I think it was, yeah. was leading a campaign of these, of these anti-abortion groups, writing a letter to say, thank you, Mr. President, for delivering basically 25% of your promise to our movement. <laughs> You know, because because the other ones are you know defund Planned Parenthood and, got, and stuff yeah. like that. Okay. Yeah, but there's a list so, of three or four things. But this was critical. They thought was big. Maybe, yeah, maybe. this is yeah. big. And 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 again, for for Trump, this is a moment to say, I told you I was going to nominate a, a conservative. I told you we we're going to you know uh, get him on the Supreme Court. We did. I stand here in the Rose Garden on a beautiful spring day, and I announce, we have given you 35 years of conservative justice on the court. Now, that's a good thing. You know, I. I yeah, I guess I accept that. But at the same time, I was thinking about that earlier this morning. I mean, what credit does Donald Trump really get for Neil Gorsuch? It, it was really Mitch McConnell who delivered Neil Gorsuch and the, by refusing to give Merrick Garland correct. a vote. But 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 and and don't uh, take the long view. America and, is a short view kind of country. Yeah, all right. <laughs> and then the Republican, the Senate was in Republican control. Yeah. So all he had to do was nominate any dork at all. Oh and yeah, would have gotten him. Yeah, confirmed. yeah, yeah. And Donald Trump didn't have to twist any arms, nope. do any work in the Senate at all. No. I, mean, you know, I totally I mean? understand. I mean, yeah. the, the fact I mean, of the matter is that once... Nothing except it, put the name up. And it wasn't his nominee. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't it was, even his nominee. It was a nominee exactly, off right. a list that was provided it's, to him by these organizations. Exactly. And, there you go. and all he had yeah. to do was to right. pick, pick right. one from the list. And yeah. he picked one from the right. list. Right. Um, he picked a quality candidate. No two ways about it. I mean, the guy was, you know, during those hearings, you heard nothing. I mean, ideologically, people could disagree with him on everything. Sure. He was not a... You know, a molester, an abuser, a drug user, a, you know. He's not a, a wacko from TV who is not necessarily off of the short list for right. Donald Trump SCOTUS. Right. I mean, he, he wasn't Omarosa, which, you, right. you know, you would expect him to pick, you know, somebody off of one of his shows. You know, so 
give him credit for doing what he said he was going to do. I'm going to pick someone off this list that's been recommended right. to me, and I'm going to stand out of the way, and I'm going to let it get done. And he stood out of the way and let it get done. I mean, the, the credit you can give him is he won the election. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay. I want to come back to Syria for just a second because the, the you would think that um, where the criticism might – where the, the, the most severe criticism of the bombing of Syria – did not come from Hillary Clinton. It didn't come from John Kerry. It didn't come from Barack Obama. It came from Breitbart. Yeah. It came from the alt right. Uh-huh. It came from Steve Bannon's people. Yeah. People who were the most uh, outspoken of Donald Trump supporters. Right. Now who say he's betrayed them because um, he, he, he's supposed to be an isolationist, and now he's out there. Doing what Barack Obama did, and, bombing other countries. And I'm not going to engage uh, so, in some of the most that, loony part of that conversation. Yeah. Because yeah. The, some portions of it have gone off the rails, and True. I'm not going to talk about that. But does it hurt him among his base is my real question. Yeah. Well, well, it's a, it, the fascinating thing is to watch the tweets from members of Congress. The people who are opposed to this thing are, you know, your friends in the Barbara Lee wing of the Democratic Party um, and, and, and the Rand Paul wing of the Republican Party and Justin Amash saying that Congress has to— uh, have the authority to declare war, not the president of the United States, which is a really funny kind of alliance. And and there is this, again, you you you. This is the second time we've hit it. Right, first it was on health care, um, where the ultra conservative wing said this is not a conservative bill. Now you've got Syria, where the ultra conservative wing is saying this is not the isolationist, non-interventionist policy yeah, we had yeah. planned, we had begged for. Um, you begin to wonder who exactly Donald Trump is serving with this, if. His base is outraged, and mm-hmm. the liberals are outraged. But then again, you could also argue maybe that is proof that he's got a good moderate policy, right, or a centrist policy. If you're going to offend the Justin Amashes and the Barbara Lees of the world, you've probably done something right because everybody else is sort of in the middle. Yeah. So what's next? Uh, infrastructure or tax reform or? Well, tax reform is the one they're talking about a lot. But, man, that is a Gordian knot. I mean, good luck. And again, here's where you have the problem. We keep talking about this border adjustment tax is going to be the key to tax reform. It's relatively clear that they're talking about two different types of tax when they say border adjustment tax. It's not clear which one they mean, and it's a tremendous difference to the business community which one you impose. But again, Trump has not sort of shown his hand what he wants to do. So at the moment— That would be part of tax reform? That would be tax reform. Uh, and and one of the things that uh, the, the president has suggested is, well, why don't we just throw infrastructure in there, too, as sugar? You know, OK, you guys don't like my tax reform plan, but you want to build a highway. So why don't we give you the highway and the tax reform at the same time in one bill in one bill? Let's make a yeah, two trillion dollar. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. Uh, it would be an extraordinarily complex thing to try and get through. And I don't have great hope for it. But infrastructure not not that any of these issues are are easy, right? But infrastructure is pretty straightforward, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, you got this need over here for all these bridges, highways, water treatment plants, or whatever have to be rebuilt, and we're going to give you this much money. Yeah, right? but you got to pay for it. That's the problem. I mean, well, remember remember the uh, the fight that Barack Obama had with the uh, you know fixing some of the roads, and he put Biden in charge of getting that money to where it needed the stimulus. The yeah. stimulus, yes. Uh, and like, 
that was a nightmare for the Obama administration. I mean, it turned out pretty well, but like they faced a lot of opposition for that, and and an awful lot of sort of picking winners arguments. And yeah, giving one more Solyndra, you know, who collapsed. Right, and, you know. right, and like what's and what really what's a real job and what's a temporary job. And well, and all by the way, that. there's another portion of this that intrigues me. Not to change the subject completely, but you know, the first thing they have to do is keep the government open at the end of this month. Like that's the uh, first that's, thing. That's true. That's right. Um, and 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 one of the things that you know, Trump, Mr. Trump says he's all about jobs, 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 jobs jobs, which I, which I believe is really his driving motivation. Well, if you start slashing billions of dollars from the federal government, your friends at the AFGE, for instance, who sponsor your show, are going to tell you that you're going to lay off 200,000 people. Mm -hmm. yeah. right? Government employees are going to get laid off. Where are you going to employ those folks? Are you just going to say, to heck with it, right? So the first thing they have to do is figure out, can they keep the government open and can they actually write a 2018 budget that does what they want to do, shrink the government? without devastating the economy by taking a whole bunch of people off payroll. Well, of course, we know they haven't had a budget in a couple of years. They're just have continuing resolutions. But you're right. And, and with the deadline, which is April 28 or April 29, right. for when, when the, the federal government runs out of money to keep operating, um, they come back from their Easter break on the 24th, I believe it is. Check the calendar, whatever Yeah, that that's about is. right. Yeah. So they'll have four days. Right. And they haven't started that debate yet. They'll like I said, Bugs Bunny. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you hear that noise when someone is trying to yeah. run. You're yeah. la, 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 and and you can't yeah. believe that they're that they will end up with a government shutdown. I mean, they're, they're, they're not that stupid. I don't think there's there's no new Gingrich in this crowd who's saying we're going to show them right. We're going to teach them a lesson. I don't think yeah. unless it's some members of the Tea Party. But yeah, I don't. Unlikely I, they'll prevail. But still. That's going to consume them certainly for that week. That's yeah. all they'll have time. To it's do. all they'll have time to do. And 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 once again, you know, I don't know about you, but when I do my homework at the last minute, uh, it's never my best work. Uh, so when Congress comes in to fund a you know trillion dollar government at the last minute, it's never their best work. I always wonder what's going to be in there. Right. And as as several guests have told us before, I mean, there's a reason why tax reform hasn't happened since 1986. It's complicated. It's complicated, and, and, and I can't give you a break without taking it out of my pocket. Yeah. I mean, right. it's, it's, a, it's a lump sum game, and the question is, who's going to win and who's going to lose? Mm -hmm. And that Washington Mall, all those the millions of people you see on the mall, they are lobbyists who are lobbying for every one of those. <laughs> exactly. Right. Okay. exactly. Hey, Paul, great to catch up with you. Thank you so much, my friend. You can follow Paul Singer, of course, and all of our other friends, David Jackson, Susan Page, at USA Today, USA Today. Com. Thanks for coming in, man. Thanks All for right. having me. Great day. Have a lovely day. you please have a wonderful, wonderful Monday. Come back and see us again tomorrow morning. We'll be right here, and we'll be this looking for you. This is the Bill Press Show. The Parting Shot with Bill Press. This is is the Bill Press Show. Yeah, remember Wag the Dog? Well, once a hit movie is now the running theme of almost every presidency. I mean, ever since that movie starring Dustin Hoffman came out in 1997 about a president who distracts attention from a White House scandal by starting a war, uh, almost every president has done it. Bill Clinton was accused of wagging the dog by bombing a chemical factory in Iraq during the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Uh, some people say that's why George W. Bush went to war in Iraq and why Barack Obama bombed Libya. Well, now it's Donald Trump's turn for real. I mean, look, Trump doesn't know what he's doing in Syria. He, he has no strategy in Syria. 
uh, either to defeat ISIS or to topple Bashar al-Assad. One day he says Assad should stay. The next day he says Assad must go. One day he says we shouldn't be doing anything in Syria. The next day he sends 59 cruise missiles in to bomb a Syrian military airfield. Now, granted, the use of chemical weapons by Bashar al-Assad is a war crime, uh, but it's not the first one that Bashar al-Assad has committed since Donald Trump has been president. This one just happened as Donald Trump was bogged down in the Russian scandal, driving his approval rating down to a record low of 35 percent. So Donald Trump needed a distraction, and he found it just like other presidents before him by sending in bombs away. Well, bombing a Syrian airfield may make Donald Trump look tough, but remember, Wag the dog is no substitute for a real strategy in Syria, and Donald Trump doesn't have one. This is The Bill Press Show.